Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and happy holidays from Run Run Live Central here at the Mongolian Yak Farm. Well, I was going to do a whole bit about wild reindeer herds catching the zombie virus, but since it's a holiday, I won't mess with you. Today we have a really good talk with Bobby Gill from Cupid's Undie Run about his adventure. And I'm always a bit hesitant when a publicist reaches out to me about something or someone. I always worry about, you know, doing the same interview as 10 other podcasters. And that really doesn't add value to you, you folks. But I enjoyed talking with Bobby. I resonated with him, and we we had a lot of fun. And he does this sort of, oh, shocks, we just got lucky you know, we're in the right place at the right time routine. But, I mean, if you read between the lines, there's some focus and some talent there for him uh, for this undie run to get so big so fast and all the success they've had. So there's there's something to be learned there. In Section 1, I'm going to talk about strength training. And in Section 2, I'm going to wax poetic about the key moments in the runner's journey. I really enjoyed writing this piece, so hopefully... You know, I can never tell whether you guys will like it or not, but I really like this one. So last time I talked to you folks, I was rolling off the Mill Cities Relay and getting ready for the Jeff Galloway Half Marathon in Atlanta. And I've continued to have great training weeks, and I'm failing, <laughs> failing, I may be failing, but I'm also feeling fairly strong. I treated the Half Marathon as a pace run, and I didn't taper for it. I have pivoted my training from speed work to long tempo training. So from the races I've done recently, it shows me that I have enough speed, but I need to work on my strength and my staying power, the top end. And I raced the previous Sunday before the Jeff Galloway at that Mill Cities Relay, and then I did two hard hour and 20-minute step-up tempo runs during the week. And I was also fighting some sort of cold all last week, so... I wasn't going into it, you know, to race it hard as like an A race or a target race. And a travel race in the middle of December is just the worst timing ever. But I had to be in Atlanta all week anyhow, so I just went down early. It was an opportunity for me to test out my pacing strategy, you know, do another little test race, meet some old friends from the Podosphere community, 
and check out a new race. I'm not going to go into full-on race report mode here for you. There's certainly a lot of uh, write-ups for this race. A lot of people have talked about it. And I'm certainly not going to debate the Galloway training stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's not for me, but I don't really care what you do, and you shouldn't care what I do. And kudos to Jeff for lowering the barrier to entry to running for so many people. He's doing good work with his flock. So overall, the race is uh, is very well managed. Everything went off without a hitch. The weather was good, maybe a little warm if you're in the back of the pack. I mean, I ran short shorts and a singlet. And I was soaked when I finished, but it, the heat didn't affect my running. And the course was actually pretty interesting. It had some pretty parts, and it was kind of nice for a city course. So the defining feature was hills. <laughs> I've worked and I've run in Atlanta for years, and I know it's a hilly place. And running a half marathon through it is challenging. So Jeff, Jeff Galloway, he told me that it's actually a downhill course because the finish in Piedmont Park is a bit lower than the start, but it's still, it's a very hilly course. And if you know Atlanta, you know they aren't periodic steep hills like a New England race where you might have a, a 500-foot monster somewhere on the course. They're consistent, long, shallow uphills and downhills. They're rollers. You're always either climbing or you're descending. And it makes it hard it made it hard for me, anyhow, to execute my pacing strategy, to hold a pace. So I forgot my Garmin at home. <laughs> that would freak most people out. But I paced old school off my Ironman watch, which isn't a problem for me. I was intending to try to pace just under my marathon goal pace of eight-minute miles. Uh, but the hills made pacing, like I said, kind of impossible. So I just ran by feel. This is a course where it would have really helped to know the course. The course is a bit deceptive at the end because they run you by and around the park where the finish is a couple of times. So you're essentially circling the finish line for three and three or more miles. And Tim Cleary warned me. He told me that there's this big hill at mile nine and then a steep downhill into the park. So that was the landmark I was looking for. And yeah, there was a big hill at the, uh, the nine-mile mark, but that wasn't the one Tim was talking about. There was the steepest hill on the course around 10 miles with a long descent after that, and then you turn into the park. And tactically, this is where I screwed up. After climbing the big hill in good order, right, so now we're at like mile 10, mile 11, I got to the steep downhill and thought to myself, well, the turn into the park is at the bottom of this hill, so I'll spend what I have left here on this downhill and then just cruise into the finish of the park. Well, the problem with that is that once you turn into the park, it's still a couple miles of rolling hills to get to the finish. So I struggled those last couple of miles in the park on dead legs. Not what I was intending to do, but still finished under my target average pace, which tells me that I probably went out too fast. So I hung around the finish shoot, giving out encouraging words and high fives, and enjoyed the warm Atlanta sun all day. So I'll tell you a couple of big data stories from the week. <laughs> so now it's the holiday season, so I expect to get my share of junk mail from people trying to sell me stuff. I noticed over the last eh, few weeks, month, that I've been getting flooded with targeted advertisements for fancy cars. So every day I get some glossy brochure and personal invite letter from Lexus and Jaguar and Range Rover. And I was trying to figure out what demographic inflection point I had tripped 
in the great consumer database in the cloud? Why did BMW and Mercedes and Audi think that I was ripe for the picking? Well, I figured it was probably my age and income level. You know, I'm ripe for that midlife crisis car. But it all seemed rather sudden and targeted. Then I was out on my long run with my friend Ryan in the town forest last weekend, and we were talking about it. And Ryan owns a marketing firm, so we figured it out. You see, all the college financial data is in the public domain. So the great marketing data bureaus in the sky, they know that I just sent a last college tuition check. And that same day, the handsome glossies for shiny new Carefully handcrafted by Austrian engineers glinting in the desert sun as a slightly graying athletic male model grins at the abundance of life while leaning into a challenging scenic corner in the road from a warm, self-heating leather seat began arriving by the bundles in my mailbox. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Strength training to get ready for a hard training cycle. This is a part three of four. This week we'll talk about strength training for runners. Once again, it's a fairly simple topic on the surface that has just too many options when you get into the specifics. Like everything else, the best strength training routine for you is the one that works for you. What you need is specific to who you are, what you are trying to accomplish, and what phase of your life or your training you're in. There is no universal workout routine that is perfect for everyone. You need to choose what works and what is sustainable for you and not worry about all the noise. As much as every fitness blog or program would like to sell it to you, there is no silver bullet for strength training. There is no ab buster for three easy payments of $9.99 that's going to make you a better runner or more able to adapt to the training load. There are, however, some common points of reference, and I'll walk us through those. Why do you care about strength training? Running is a very specific sport. Why waste valuable training time on building strength? To answer this question, all you have to do is go watch the mid-pack coming through the finish at any long-distance race. Look at their form. Notice how their shoulders are slumped. Notice how their feet are dragging on the pavement. Notice how their hips are dropping. See how their entire bodies seem to be slumping. That's because they are weak. Most typically, they are weak in their core. This is why you care. If you are strong, especially in the core, you will avoid debilitating failures late in the race and also be able to maintain an efficient form. When your form breaks or slumps, you become very inefficient. It takes more energy to run. It just snowballs from there. Muscle fatigue leads to slumping form. Slumping form leads to inefficiency. Inefficiency leads to the death shuffle at the end of a race. Instead, if you have strength train, especially your core, you can hold your mechanics together in the last miles of a hard race and maintain race pace even when tired. This is the proverbial running from your core. That's the why. What's the how? Well, we'll get to the how first. What's the what? What? 
what are the muscles that you want to strengthen through training and how do you want to strengthen them? Most important for runners is what we call the core. What's your core? Your core is all those muscles below your chest and above your thighs. And these include your lower back muscles, your abdominals, your hips, your glutes. And these muscles are important to runners because they hold us upright and balanced when we run. When you focus on your core as a runner, you are not trying to build muscle mass or brute strength. For running, you're trying to build lean muscle and endurance. Because of this, you'll be doing more high repetition or body weight exercises than traditional heavy weight lifting. And there are plenty of core exercises. I'll give you a list you can look for on YouTube. Ready? Planks, side planks, crunches, side crunches, V-ups, toe touches, bicycles, scissors, reverse crunches, ball lifts, Russian twists, push-ups, center press, flies, shoulder press, more push-ups, more planks, mountain climbers, chalice squats, fire hydrants, bird dogs, clamshells, flutter kicks, and leg lifts. In strength training, when we say repetition or rep, this means how many times you do the exercise. A set is one occurrence of the exercise. For example, if I were to drop to the floor right now and do 20 push-ups, that would be one set of 20 reps. If I did 10 exercises in a row and then repeated the same exercises in the same sequence a second time, that would be two sets of that routine. See how it works? An example core workout then would be three sets of three of the exercises I just mentioned with maybe push-ups or planks between each set. I typically do at least 20 reps, or if you'd rather use a timer, do one minute per exercise. Try to work in one to three sets of your core routine two to three times a week. It's going to seem really hard at first. You probably won't be able to go a whole minute without resting. Your back's going to hurt. But you will adapt very quickly, and you'll start feeling it in your running after two or three sessions. Start with one set. Work your way up to three sets. If you can do three sets of a series of, eh, let's say, 9 to 12 exercises for a minute each with minimal rest, you've got a nice 45-minute workout there. And if you do that consistently, two or three times a week, you'll feel the strength in your core when you run, especially at the end of a long race. You also want to develop your core's ability to stabilize. And this means more balance-based exercises than static or machine-based weight training. You'll want to train like a runner, not like a weightlifter. There are versions of many of these core routines that you can do on an exercise ball or a BOSU ball so that you can, are getting that stability work as well. So you can stop at your core, but if you're going to be well-balanced, you may want to work on your other muscle zones. This means working in a chest, back, and arms routine. And again, you're not trying to become Mr. or Ms. Universe. You're just trying to get overall fitness and develop balance. So this means staying away from the big weights and the machines and focus on body weight or light dumbbells. And work up a sweat. Get your heart rate up. Minimize the rest between sets. Chest, back, and arm routines are very common, very well known. Just Google them and you'll see plenty of examples. Finally, what about the legs? Should we strength train our legs? Well, you have to be careful 
how this works into and meshes with your running. But yes, it's perfectly okay to strength train your legs in your routine, especially getting ready for a specific race. The types of exercises you'll do for leg strength are various squats and lunges. Again, for runners, these are typically body weight or light dumbbells. Just Google lunges for runners and you'll see them all. I do these type of leg workouts if I have a really hilly race I'm training for. So strength training your legs, you know, it comes with a caution. Obviously, if you beat the crap out of your legs with a weights workout, it's going to impinge on your ability to run hard the next day or two. And leg routines are also stressing the same joints and connective tissue that you use for running. And you need to schedule in the appropriate rest and cadence. Like everything else we have talked about, there is no silver bullet. Everyone is different. Depending on where you are in your training cycle and what your goals are, you may have to do one to three or more strength workouts a week. Depending on what you need to work on, you will tailor the workouts. Like running, form is super important when you are lifting weights or doing any type of strength training. If you don't have proper form, Not only will you not get the benefit of the exercise, but you run the risk of hurting yourself. Now, if all this makes your head spin, then you should probably get a coach. A coach can set up a simple strength training program as part of your overall plan. At least ask someone to critique your form when you're in the gym. You know, doing a squat with improper form, for instance, can really hurt your back. So it's worth taking the time to get some instruction. The opportunity for runners, is when you're in between races or before you start a hard training cycle. You have time. Spend a cycle strengthening your core. Three to four weeks of consistent core strength work will get you strong going into a training cycle. In this way, you can leverage the lighter weeks between training cycles. Do something a little bit different, a little bit fun, change it up, and you build your strength, and it's very complementary. If you're strong in your core going into a training cycle, you adapt to the load much more quickly. You'll have better form. You'll be less likely to get overuse injuries. And then when you're in your hard cycle, you'll only need a light maintenance routine to stay on top of that strength. And now for today's featured interview. So, Bobby Gill, how are you, man? I'm good. How about yourself, Chris? You know, I get a little bit of a head cold. I don't know what happened. I usually don't get sick, but I'm not sick yet. I just have the sort of head cold bit going on. So I'll, my voice may be a little lower today. It makes me more of a uh, radio personality. <laughs> it's nice, a soft, sultry voice. Exactly, exactly. Coming over the airwaves. So you are the guy in charge of the Undie Run. And you're also, uh, you you won one of those, I don't know if win is the right word, but you got to be one of the Runner's World cover guys. Yeah. Yeah, so give us the uh, the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do and how you got to where we are. Sure. Um, so I am a former elite-level ultra runner uh, from the East Coast. Uh, currently live in the D.C. area. You know, used to run a lot of ultras, 50K was kind of what I did the most of, but, you know, tinkered with the 100 milers and and whatnot. Um, Did pretty well, got second place at the Old Dominion 100 miler. That was the the second ultra that I, or the second 100 that I had ever run. 
I, I did not too bad in the ultra scene. But then in 2010, a buddy of mine came up with the idea of an underwear run for charity. We went with it just kind of as a, as a joke. And it ended up being far more successful than we ever could have imagined. So, you know, that first year we raised about $10,000. Here we are, we're about to um, do our seventh year. You know, we've raised, you know, probably $8 million so far for the Children's Tumor Foundation. So um, what we created, which started as a joke between friends, has turned into this, you know, global thing that I've put my full effort behind. So don't have much time to, uh, to train anymore like I used to, but still out there running and, you know, more of on the race director side of things these days. So raising 10 grand for a first year race is really good. Why did you, why do you think this resonated? Well, um, so this was, when we started this, this was back in 2010. So this is before Tough Mudder existed, before there was color run. You know, there's a lot of novelty runs that exist um, that have come upon the scene uh, since we started. And so we were one of the first ones out there that really offered something different, like a non-competitive run. And we didn't just, you know, offer up an opportunity to running your underwear. Uh, one of actually the the important pieces of our run is that there is a good amount of partying involved and not just after the run, but before the run as well. So, you know, people show up, you have a few drinks, you take your pants off, you're partying in your underwear. And then, you know, at 2 PM we go outside and we do a short run outside in the freezing cold because it's February. And then we come back and party some more. So it's like this, it's a, it's a format that's unlike any other, charity event or run or, or anything you've been to, really. So you just basically codified an average day in college. <laughs> yeah. Um, Get up, start drinking, go run around naked, <laughs> come back, drink some more. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess that is what we are presenting the opportunity for folks to do, with, with the so, exception that this is all for a good cause. So whereas right. in college... You're just doing it for your own personal satisfaction. Here, you're having a great time for a great cause. So it's like a it's a win-win. Yeah, I'm guessing the demographic for this is uh, the target demographic is a fairly young, uh, leans fairly young. That. Yeah, yeah, because you don't want to see old guys running around in their underwear. No, we do get a lot of the older guys running around in their underwear. Like everyone wants to let loose, and so. You know, if someone wants to come out and let their freak flag fly, like we're all for it. And so, you know, we've we've had people up into their 80s out here running with us. So, you know, it's it's a little something for everyone. I think 50 is the line for the give a blank. Right. So <laughs> that's that's my rule. If you're under 50, you have to have a nice body. If you're over 50, you really don't care anymore. Well, I mean, I, I've stopped caring about what I look like in my underwear. I'm just out there to have fun. So I encourage everyone else to, to not give a blank as well. So I, I, like, I like the idea of doing it in February, though, when it's nice and cold. What's, what's the coldest? Because you have these races all over the place now, right? Yeah, we started it in D.C., um, but we're in this year we're going to be in 39 different cities. So we're, uh, there's 36 of them here in the U.S., and we've got three of them in Australia. So it's international, and... Um, What's the coldest? Normally, I would want to say like uh, Boise, Idaho or Minneapolis. Um, but actually, last year in D.C. was one of one of the coldest days on record that Washington, D.C. had ever had. 
it was negative with the wind chill negative 11 degrees yeah i um yeah i had wind burn on my thighs for like a week after the run yeah there's some parts of your body that don't see that kind of weather not very not, often yeah like yeah. i've i've done some ultras where it was like negative four but you know you're in full-on tights and right you know you've got the heating things in your gloves and and all that you know out here i'm just in a little pair of tidy whiteies and a maybe some arm warmers and that's about it yeah yeah, so have you ever had, uh, so it's only a mile, though, or somewhere near a mile, right? Mile, like, mile and a half. We like to say that it's a brief run. Yeah. <laughs> and the jokes the jokes just write themselves, don't they? We've got so many underwear puns, it's not even funny. <laughs> so, so I mean, is there ever any concern that somebody's going to get a little frostbite on their, uh, on their pointy bits? Well, uh, so last year in D.C., the one I was talking about where it was negative 11, we actually were quite concerned with how cold it was. So we, we shortened the run, even though it's short to begin with. We, we cut it short a little bit um, right before we started just to be safe. And um, at that point, no one really minds because they're out there and their fingers were frozen and Everyone was like, okay, I did it. I went outside. I ran around. Get me back inside before I die. Yeah, I, I can see the appeal of that. Yeah. So, so you're saying last year the D.C. race had a little shrinkage. <laughs> I, I, I can uh, neither confirm nor deny uh, the status of any of that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you guys say this happened sort of by accident, but I don't believe you, right? Because what? you don't get to $8 million in, in, uh, in top line by accident. Right. True. I mean, so when we started, this was all a joke. I mean, we had no idea what we we're doing. I mean, I'm a biomedical engineer by trade. You know, I worked for the federal government reviewing cardiovascular devices and clinical trials. So like this, you know, whole, you know, being a race director and building a charity and making it global, like is nothing that I had any experience in. And really none of us um, have any experience in, but, you know, we realized after that first year, you know, we thought maybe 50 people, maybe a hundred people would show up. We had 650 people show up, raise 10 grand. We realized this thing is doing way, way better than we ever would have imagined. So since then it's just been, okay, let's just try to tame this beast and see how we can make the most of it and how we can fundraise as much money as humanly possible for the Children's Tumor Foundation. So you set up some sort of uh, franchise system for the other cities to, uh, you know, you find some some individual that can do it for you that has the same mindset and, kind and then of. enable them to do it? Yeah, I mean, a franchise kind of implies like a business and you're making money off of it and they're paying a fee. It's, it's none of that because we are a 501c3, we are a nonprofit, um, you know, so we're legitimate um, but, you know, as the D.C. run grew, you know, we started getting press and people around the country started hearing about it. And they reached out and said, hey, I want one in Cincinnati or in Seattle or wherever. So we're like, OK, hey, you know, we started interviewing people and see if they have the chops to, to put on a quality Cupid Zundi run event. And so we've just kind of been right. organically spreading since then. So we've got this this massive team of volunteer race directors all throughout the country who are you know, out there 
putting in the blood, sweat, and tears of being a race director, which is like a very thankless job at, at times. Come race day, when you got a thousand, two thousand people all standing there in their underwear, you know, screaming and having the biggest smiles on their faces that you've ever seen, it's just a, it's a very rewarding experience. Especially when you look at the total of how much was fundraised leading up to that day. Yeah, yeah, and that's you know I'm a race director too, so I always give a speech at the beginning of each season that you know none of us have time to do this, right? It's we're all volunteers. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do, and you don't have that many opportunities in your life to do something that's the right thing to do and have an impact on the community. So that's why we're doing it. So let's let's switch gears a little bit, Bobby. Tell me about so. When I was, um, I've watched this whole Runner's World cover thing going on, like in social media, over the, I don't know how long that went on, maybe a year, where everybody was trying, I think they were trying to get votes and mm-hmm. all this stuff and and uh, just a lot of noise around that. Um, you ended up getting to the top of the heap somehow. Um, talk me Talk me through that process. Random luck is really how I would describe that. But yeah, so Runner's World has their cover search contest that they put on. Uh, this year it was presented by ASICS and Tag Heuer, you know, as like the main backers of the contest. And the basic premise was you submit your story online, answer a few questions, submit some photos, and uh, from there there's a team of judges that go through all the applications and decide, you know, who's going to make it to the next round and they factor in you know the story how you know the story and how well you interview and uh, you know the votes that you get online you know through sharing it on social media and stuff like that so it's funny because for Cupid's Undy Run I I saw this contest and I'm always thinking of my race directors so I started you know scanning through my list of race directors and thinking of whose story would be the best and so I was discussing it internally with some of our team and everyone just kind of looked at me with like their jaws open and they're like, no, Bobby, you, you need to tell your story because like you're the former ultra runner. You're the co-founder of this thing that we've got going on here. Like you need to tell your story. That's the most impactful. That's the one that has the best chance of getting on the cover. So I wasn't initially in this for any self-promotion. You know, it seemed like the best chance to get our charity run on the cover. So, uh, I put my name in the hat and was, lucky enough that the judges liked my story and I advanced from I think 1600 entries down to 100 semi-finalists down to 10 finalists and then uh lo and behold come to find out uh I was one of the winners which is the craziest thing that's ever happened in my life so how does that work is that a full run publication with you on the cover? Yeah, so there's there's two winners. So it's the December issue, which uh, was on newsstands from about in the middle of November to the middle of December. Um, and there's two in winners, the, one guy and yeah. one girl. In the U.S.? Yeah, I think the, the international versions have different covers, um, so I'm right. not sure about that one. Right. But it's still, what, a couple million maybe? I, no. I would... Uh, I, uh, a couple hundred... I want to say... It's either 15 million or 1.5 million, the, the circulation. I looked it up, um, but I don't have the numbers in front of me. But either way, it's, it's a buttload of magazines that now feature my half-naked self um, in a fairly ridiculous pose. So, yeah. Yeah. 
So how's that been in terms of impact for your foundation? Um, well, I mean, I'm talking to you right now, so yeah. we're getting yeah. some good press out of this, which is what we're hoping for is, you know, we've got this little charity run that we kind of fake it till you make it. We're, we're starting to get exposure. People are talking about it. People really don't start signing up in mass until the new year hits. So, you know, right now we're early December talking. And so we've got, I think, 6,000 people registered so far. Come race day, we'll have about 25,000. So we're getting there. Um, we've definitely seen an uptick. But I think once January hits and we get closer to race day, we're really going to see uh, the difference because people will are, you know, the holidays will have passed. And that's really the big right. block for people to, to sign up. Right, right. Well, I mean, I hear you talking and you always say, this was lucky. I lucked into this. I wasn't thinking of this. But uh, I think that's your mindset, right? So in what I mean by that is by being an individual who comes in with good intent and, and giving, you know, you're naturally attracting that success to yourself, right? Whereas if you went out and tried, you know, this was my goal and I tried to get it, you know, it might be harder to get to attract that kind of success, right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, when, it, it, that's true. I mean, when, and, and that's the reason that we established ourselves as a 501c3 because we wanted to, to show to the world and prove to them that we're serious about our fundraising. We're not out here, you know, like some of these other events where it's just this big, you know, it's actually a money-making vehicle and they, you know, tie on a little bit of charity on top to make themselves look good. Like, we're in it for, for all the right reasons, um, yeah. You know, one of our, you know, there's three co-founders, uh, me and my two buddies. Um, one of our co-founders, his little brother has the genetic disorder, neurofibromatosis, which causes tumors to grow on the nervous system. So, like, he was the original impetus for us starting this. And so right. um, he actually passed away during the interview process for uh, the Runner's World cover search. So that was something that I discussed a lot with them because... Uh, you know, during my first interview with them, he had just entered hospice care and it was like, you know, there were tons of mixed emotions where the, the excitement of talking to runner's world and the possibility of being on the cover, but also the pain and sadness of, you know, the end of his days, um, you know, kind of all mixed together at the same time. Um, so the timing was actually quite interesting with all of this, but it just goes to show, you know, how important it is for us to get the word out about what we're doing. You know, you get some money collected. What's this, you know, how's that, how's that impacting? What do you, what is that money going towards? What are you doing with it? All the money uh, raised, all the net proceeds go to the Children's Tumor Foundation directly for research. So we've got a really close relationship with CTF. They're the world's leading researcher on neurofibromatosis research, uh, which, you know, I mentioned it earlier. It causes tumors to grow in the nervous system, affects one in 3,000 births. Technically, it's a rare disease, but of the rare diseases, it's one of the more common. They fund a lot of really good research, funding young investigator awards and collaborations with industry and uh, all kinds of good stuff. They're very science-based. We contribute about a quarter of their annual budget through what we're doing with Cupid's Undie Run. So over the years, they've been able to do a lot more, fund a lot more clinical trials. And there's things in the pipeline. They're starting to be promising results, but you know, there's no treatments out there yet. But you know, we've got our fingers crossed, and we're starting to see some hopeful results. 
in some clinical trials that are out there. So we're just going to keep feeding money into that research vehicle and, and hope that we get some good outcomes. That's great. That's great to make a difference. Going through this whole process with the, you know, you've been on Ultra Runner, you've done the Undy Run, you've, now you've been on Runner's World. You know, you must have run into some, some really interesting stories. Like, what's your best story? Uh, Something that just, just sort of came at you from out of the blue and kind of blew you away. Well, so year one um, was actually kind of interesting. I was actually, before we even came up with the idea of Cupid's Undy Run, I was signed up to run uh, a ho- the Holiday Lake 50K that, that morning. So the timing was actually kind of interesting when we picked this day. And I was like, guys, let's pick a different day. I've got a race that morning. And they're like, no, 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 no. We need to do it Valentine's Day. So I actually ran an ultra the morning of uh, the first ever Cupid's Undy Run. And I, I had a podium finish, which I was really psyched about. Got fourth place. There was like six inches of snow on the ground. So it was like a really difficult one where you had to like post hole through all the, like, the icy snow that was, uh, that was on the course. And... Um, the race was like three hours away, and so I sped like a demon to get back to D.C. for the run. Got a speeding ticket because I was really anxious to get back, but I actually did not make it back in time for the actual run just because of the, the timing of everything. So I arrived at the first Cupid's Undy run, which I helped put on, you know, I, I, I did all the promotion ahead of time and got all the, you know, the groundswell behind it and did all the organizing the night before of getting everything in place. But actually on the morning of, I didn't arrive until the run had just finished. So that was kind of unfortunate, but, um, you know, it, <laughs> it was still a, a good day. So you've, you've had, a, you've, you've covered a lot of ground in your life. I mean, you're a young guy. What do you what do you think you've taken away from this? What what would you tell people that you've learned that they could use? Just go for it. I mean, when we started this, it was you know, we reached out to the Children's Tumor Foundation when we first had the idea and they didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> you know, we're we're out here proposing that we're going to get all these people together and they're going to drink and they're going to party in their underwear and go running around and they're like, that sounds great. We'll take the money after the fact, but we don't want anything to do with this. And rightfully right. so. But, you know, we knew we wanted to do this, and so we went for it. And uh, we actually didn't have permits that first year, but don't tell the city that. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, we went for it, and it's proven to be the most rewarding thing. Like I said, CTF didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole, but now we've got this extremely close working relationship with them um, where, you know, we're – you know, working yeah, day yeah. in and so, day out to get it done. And, and if we had taken that feedback on day one to like, no, 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 we don't want anything to do with this, and we got dismayed by that, we wouldn't be where we are today. So you just got to just go with it and give it your all. Yeah, and I would I would translate or editorialize that if you wait for permission, you're going to miss the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. It's better to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. All right. So how do people find you? Um, you can find us at cupidsundyrun.com uh, or on Facebook, Cupid's Undy Run, Instagram. We're all over the place. And we're in 39 different cities around the world. They all happen around Valentine's Day, so this February. Most of our races do sell out, so I encourage people to sign up ahead of time. And that also gives you more time to fundraise and earn all the cool stuff that we uh, 
we incentivize you with. So, yeah, find us online. Uh, you can also find me on all the social channels. I'm at Ultra Grass Fed. And, uh, yeah, that's where we're at. And you can find a picture of uh, Bobby in his underwear on the cover of Runner's World, which you can cut out and hang on your wall. <laughs> yeah, if, if you want to, but um, <laughs> whatever floats your boat. Yeah, you're, I think you've got a lot of stories left in your life, my friend. I hope so. I hope so. It's, it's been a fun ride so far. All right, thanks for the chat. Best of luck with your race. Thanks so much, Chris. I appreciate it. All right, cheers. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Nine transformational moments in the running journey, the common experience. There are certain commonalities to the runner's experience that are hard to express to the non-running community. These events in the runner's life should ring familiar to you. These are not physical events per se. These are mental events stimulated by the intersection with running. These are the aha moments of our running lives. I have read many books by runners of the my story genre. And these are from people of all different walks of life from all over the world. I have interacted with and interviewed hundreds of runners one-on-one. The stories start to blend together in their common arcs. The stories have common waypoints on each runner's journey. What are those waypoints? Number one, the moment of decision. The first common and powerful moment is the moment of decision. At some point in the runner's life, they decide to start. Whether they are an ex-runner returning or a new entrant to the pursuit, the decision happens when there is some sort of internal tipping point reached. In some, it is quite dramatic. The doctor says, you'll be dead by 40 if you don't start taking care of yourself. The loved one is stricken by some incurable disease prompting them to act. An accident or health event suddenly and precipitously changes their perspective on what life is. These are the dramatic stories we hear and tell, but there are a host of others, other common souls who just felt the urge to move, to do something, anything, to change the direction of their life, to physically change the trajectory of their float through life. Maybe it's as simple as seeing a race finish on TV or having a friend challenge them. These less dramatic turns end up as a habit, less desperate but just as strong. Whatever the trigger is, big or small, life-threatening or mundane, the decision is made. Maybe you can remember that point, that day, that hour and minute of your decision. From that point on, you are a runner. Number two, the moment of challenge. There is a point early in our running journey where someone, maybe one of those new running friends, says, let's do X, where X is a marathon or triathlon or ultra race. And when they say this, we react in disbelief. We may recoil in fear. We either say or think, I could never do that. Then it starts to itch at us like a buzzing insect. Our mind keeps returning to that challenge. We find ourselves unexplainably on the event website, 
or researching, what would it take? Somewhere a little voice whispers, why couldn't you? Then it begins, the long climb to that unreasonable thing that now takes over your life. It pulls your family and friends in, one way or another. It crowds out lesser considerations. The challenge becomes your raison d'etre. It runs in your blood like a fever. Somewhere in the journey, to become worthy of the challenge, you find the next moment, the moment of doubt. In every runner's journey, the darkness comes. It comes in waves, it comes in your preparation, it comes in your execution, it comes when your exhaustion begins to wear down your determination, the doubt creeps in. Standing in the trail, in the freezing rain, with a sore ankle and a ferocious head cold, you slump your head to your chest and the voice says, maybe it was too much to ask, maybe I'm not up to the task, I'm just so tired. There wouldn't be any true harm in giving up. People would understand. Yes, others would understand. They don't know why you're doing it anyhow. But you would not understand. You could not forgive yourself. And you push on, mindless and near broken, but alive and striving, on to the next common milestone, the moment of triumph. Crashing through that finish line, rising to the challenge, you become something more. You are bigger, grander than your training and your event. You are a runner melded and changed by saying yes to the challenge, struggling through the doubt and climbing to the finish. This is the moment of triumph. The triumph may change your life. That little voice now asks, if I can do this thing that I didn't think was possible, what else can I do? You are that person, that athlete, and this triumph cannot be taken from you. But what follows, commonly, may not be so triumphant. The moment of ennui, when the triumph fades, you find yourself lost. With no challenge to drive you and no mountain to climb, you sink into a funk. The post-event ennui grabs you by your soul and you suffer the muddy, dark ache of lack of purpose. Sometimes the trough of despair lasts for weeks and consumes the athlete. At some point, the runner remembers that they are the person who rose to the challenge and did this great thing. And they ask, what's next? And another challenge forms. Eventually, the runner will mature. They will learn to smooth out the ups and downs of the journey. They will learn to embrace the process and the journey. They will embrace the lifestyle. Then they are changed forever. And as they travel through this running life, they will experience other common moments, like the moment of epiphany. At some point in your running life, it'll happen. That moment of clarity that pierces you like a metal shard through your soul. It will find you unexpectedly on a frozen moonlit trail as you turn your gaze to the stars in heaven. As the steam of your breath circles in meandering clouds, a notion will hit you. And it will be so clear, so true, so precise in its meaning, you will be stopped in your tracks. 
in these precious moments of epiphany, the truths of the universe seem to be revealed? Call it runner's high, call it a moment when the veil drops, call it a thin place in our known universe where we get a peek through the scratched window into another. Back again on our journey, we also have lighter moments of introspection, like the moment of oddness. There is another moment that all runners experience, similar to the epiphany, where we are pulled from our running by something odd. It might be suddenly coming across something man-made in a sea of wilderness, an old car as if parked in a different timeline, a boat incongruently tilted in a vast desert, a pair of pants hanging in a remote tree. These are the moments of discovery where you just have to stop and scratch your head and wonder, is this real? Or did I stumble into some sort of alternate timeline? Are there cameras somewhere? Your mind struggles to put together a plausible story as to how this thing came to be in this place. And the real story is probably much better. But the best moments are yet to come on your journey and have less to do with where you are and more to do with who you're with. The moments of friendship. At some point in your running journey, and at many points if you're lucky, you will stumble into a kindred soul. In some treacherous endeavor, you'll meet and understand another human. You will connect and pull together as a team and push each other through the hard spots. It is a friendship joined and shared in these common moments of the runner's journey. These bonds are stronger than common things. They are formed in a mutual understanding and a shared passion akin to the battlefield foxhole. And this may be where we begin to understand the community of the sport. We learn to be in service to like-minded and like-souled individuals. We connect and become a greater organism than when we began the journey alone. And the final moment is where we arrive and we find ourselves in the journey, the moment of peace. Eventually, this journey we are all on will be found by peace. When all the races have been run, when all the challenges have been conquered, when the memories of friendship shared are cemented in our beings, we will find the serendipity of a worthy journey. We find the kindness of common souls. We find peace. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, you have run, maybe in your underwear, to the end of episode 4-328 of the Run Run Live podcast. It will be about Christmas when this episode drops. I hope you all enjoy whatever version of the winter solstice you celebrate. Make sure you're kind to your family, even if they're testing your patience. I'm in the midst of a couple of hard weeks of volume and tempo. I'm going to run the Groton Marathon this weekend as a long training run. And I got a couple of listeners who have stepped up and said they're going to come along. I took the week after the Galloway as a bit of a step back. I did a couple of easy, easier fartlek runs to let my legs get a bit of recovery before this last big push. This week, I knocked off a solid one-hour and 30-minute step-up run. 
and my zone three and zone four efforts are, you know, somewhere around 15 seconds a mile faster than my goal pace, so that bodes well. I'm going to do a two-hour step up tomorrow, and that should be somewhere in the 14-mile range. Next week, I'll repeat those efforts and cap it all off with a 20-miler, and then I'm going to taper and take a swing at the Rock and Roll Phoenix race on the 17th. It's not ideal, but if I'm going to requalify in time to get reseated at Boston, I'm basically out of time. <laughs> if I can work on my strength training and dial in my nutrition to drop a couple pounds, I should be right on my goal pace. It's not guaranteed, but I have to commit. If you dither and give yourself outs, you'll never accomplish your goals. You need to have the there is no plan B attitude. So that's it. I'm committed. Over the next three weeks, I'm going to do the work I can. It's going to come down to a little bit of luck and disciplined race execution. So last week, in addition to the fine automobilia brochures, I was also getting a bunch of calls on my cell phone from various states, and I'd answer them or they'd leave me a message. Sometimes they'd ask for Harry, and I'd tell them it was the wrong number. Sometimes they'd ask about my interest in earning an online degree. It wasn't until one of them asked for a Harry Potter that I figured out what was going on. Someone had filled out an interest form for colleges using my phone number and Harry Potter's name. At first I was annoyed, but then I'd be like, are you listening to what you're saying? You're asking for Harry Potter. Really? Anyhow, I just explain it to him now. I mean, if you're an admission assistant for an online college, you really don't need me adding to your misery, do you? So I joked with my kids, though, that I should start asking about wizarding classes and such. But my best story from last week is about ancient smells. Hmm. I had to pack for a week in Atlanta, including a race. I am a business traveler. I use a small rollerboard and will not check a bag. <laughs> I had to figure out how to get all my stuff into the one bag. The item of clothing that takes up the most space is my size 12D Hoka Clifton 2s that I'm currently running in. So I decided I'd wear those on the plane and save the space in my bag. Now, I've been running in these shoes since the middle of August. You figure 30 miles a week for 16 weeks, that's north of 400 miles. Many of these miles were hot and sweaty. Out in the elements, these shoes are rather well used. Salt-encrusted and, dare I say, aromatic. I get on the plane to Atlanta and get upgraded to first class. I kick my shoes off to let them air out a bit and give my feet some breathing room too. And the steward comes by with the tray for the meal service. Yes, they still serve meals in first class. On the tray, he has balanced gracefully a nice full glass of red wine. As he places a tray on my tray table, the nice full glass of red wine drops off the front directly between my legs. And I have one of those oh shit moments. There is a moment of good-natured chaos, but I discover that the wine totally missed my white pants, and merely glanced off my computer bag, 
where did the wine go? Well, it neatly filled up my size 12D hokas. Now I've got a pair of wine-soaked running shoes that I have to race in the next day. And the attendant was mortified as I poured wine <laughs> out of my shoes. But I assured them that it wasn't the end of the world. They had given me another great story to tell. And if that was the worst thing to happen to me, then I'm leading a charmed life indeed. More noticeable was the incredibly unique aroma of old sweat combined with cheap wine. I've wandered this planet for many years, and I don't think I've ever smelled anything like that. A very rich, full-bodied smell with notes of dead animal carcass, you might say. I smiled when I thought about the race the next day and the people wondering what that smell was. Maybe I'd be like the Pied Piper attracting all those middle-aged Galloway women with my secret wine pheromones. Then I thought, maybe this isn't a unique smell. Maybe this is a very ancient smell. Maybe this is the smell of Greek and Roman warriors. Maybe I had rediscovered the scent of Pheidippides himself. So, think about that when you unwrap your Old Spice cologne gift set from under your pagan yule bush this year, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.